Well, welcome to this episode of InfoSec Journeys. We're really excited today to be joined by Becky Pinkard, someone we've been really looking forward to having on the show. Somebody who's got a lot of experience in information security throughout the breadth uh, of the industry. And I'm so excited to kind of find out what makes you tick, Becky, um, your insights, your skills, your experience, your motivations within information security. And I'm sure you've got a lot um, that you can share with, uh, with our audience. Let me throw it over to you, Becky, uh, for a quick intro. Tell us a bit about yourself. Yeah, sure. Thanks, guys. Thanks for having me. First of all, it's a, it's a real pleasure to get to speak with you both. And um, yeah, so I'm, I'm uh, with Aldermore Bank right now. I'm a CISO uh, there. I have been there since May of 2019. And um, yeah, like you said, prior to that, a lot of different years uh, spent across uh, several different organizations um, doing all kinds of stuff within the security space. So it's been a passion of mine um, ever since I saw my first ever attack back in 1998, maybe it was. And um, I was working in a knock at that point in time because I'd gotten interested in tech. And uh, so, yeah, it's just been a bit of a roller coaster since then, but still enjoying it. So very grateful to be in the space. Amazing. That's cool. Well, I'm really keen now to know about what, what was this attack? What got you hooked into information security in 1998? What did you see? I, I, do you know what? I can never remember the name of it. I always have to look it up. It was, um, it was on uh, Windows NT boxes at the time. And um, it was basically, there was a, you know one of these horrible looking little windows and you put in someone's IP address and you basically just hit the button and it would just blue screen of death, uh, the, the box. <laughs> And so, uh, you know, obviously you had to be on the same network. There's no such thing, you know, as a, a remote attack capability or thought process around it at that point in time, um, other than that worms and things like that, you know, that we had seen. Um, but yeah, so I, I had never seen anything like that up close. And I, I must have just blue screened of death the heck out of every guy that sat close to me in the knock that night that I discovered it. And um, yeah, that was it. It was just like a match had been lit and I, and I was just off. I, I was so curious from there. <laughs> Amazing. So um, how, how did you get into that sock then? Well, I, so, so it was a knock. It was network operations okay. center. I don't even think they had socks back then. <laughs> um, but yeah, I um, had been, I'd been working at a help desk. So it was at the same company and I had been on their um, uh, business help desk. I'd started off on the entry level help desk and it was picking up the call and basically like, yes, how may I help you with your internet, you know, dial up networking configuration. And this was back when everything was all, you know, BODs and modems and ISDN and, um, helped people do that, got promoted there a couple of times, um, ended up becoming the manager for the business help desk. And they wanted me to continue on the management path. And I was like, ah, I just, I, I want to learn more about the geeky stuff because I had really enjoyed all of that. And, and I enjoyed the troubleshooting process. And um, yeah, so I uh, found out about the job in the knock and uh, managed to get myself hired over there and was the first female that they had ever had on a graveyard rotation. So that was uh, the, I've told this story before, but the manager at the time told me, he's like, well, how are you going to feel working overnight with all these men? And I was like, well, how are they going to feel working overnight with me? You know, so <laughs> I was like, bring it basically. So yeah, that, uh, that was how I got my start into the market. How there. did that make you feel then? Um, I mean, did, did you feel like you had to kind of defend yourself and your capabilities a bit more than others? Or? Uh, I didn't know any more. I didn't know any better then. You know, it was with with social media and with the world being brought so much more close together. You know, we 
we're able to share all of these experiences, especially from all the different perspectives. So from uh, groups that have traditionally been a bit more marginalized, whether it be women, whether it be, you know, people of color, whether it be LGBTQ people, um, we just didn't have that capacity to share our stories in the same mm. way. And so I have no idea really that, I mean, other than how I grew up, I mean, I grew up being told that um, God had created women to serve man. That's how I grew up in the South, in Texas, you know? And so I just sort of accepted that there were things that I would never be able to do. I would never be president of the United States. Until Krista McAuliffe went up into space, I would never be an astronaut because women, you know, basically weren't technical enough or smart enough to do those kinds of jobs. And um, yeah, so I just, I'm surprised it was even cheeky back to the guy, to be honest with you, but I just was like, <laughs> I want to do it. I mean, I'd always been sort of, you know, a mold breaker anyway. Um, without really trying just because I was a kid at like three years old I told my mom I was like I'm not wearing dresses anymore it's not happening you know <laughs> and now we all know why um but yeah back in those <laughs> days uh I just didn't know any better it's, it's just the way it was if that makes any sense and then and then fast forward to present day chief information security officer for uh for a major bank um, is, is a really impressive journey. What, what does, what's that like? I mean, we'll explore your journey a bit more in, in a bit of detail, but what's it like? Uh, I guess, do, do you feel like you're at the top of your game as a CISO? Is there, is there kind of... Oh, uh, no, 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 no. I'm, I feel very entry level. So I'm uh, definitely, you know, entry level into doing this role, entry level into this part of my career and this part of my journey within cybersecurity. Um, the thing that excites me is I still have a lot to learn. You know, I still have a, a ton of information to learn, experiences to learn. And uh, yeah, things that I want to do in my career. So definitely not not quite there yet. <laughs> awesome. What what was the kind of motivation for for taking the CISO role? And do do you find it like more challenging than uh, other kind of roles that you've that you've had within the industry, or is it kind of uh, is it nice to be able to kind of set your own strategy? What was the kind of key uh, driver there then? Uh, for me, it was it was almost like. Um, it was a little bit like, and I always joke about this because I was such a, a, um, a, a goody two shoes in school. Like I was, if I wasn't teacher's pet, I wasn't having it, you know, like I, I loved making like the teacher was like, Becky is a star pupil. Yes, yes I am. You know, and I felt <laughs> successful. And for me being able to get a CISO role and then to hopefully succeed in the CISO role, I think I, it feels like a, um, almost a culmination of all of that experience over the past sort of 24 years, you know, of uh, being able to to show that yes I can actually do this and yes I've actually gotten into this role now can I make a success of the role um that um is sort of the very personal you know kind of um soul searching I guess silliness of it all um but then yeah outside of that it was just I, I wanted to see if I could do it I want to see if I could take all this experience I've had across all these different crazy roles and opportunities you know and experiences and pull it together and and do this job that's all encompassing and this job that gets so much grief and mm. a job quite frankly that I've talked a lot about and had never done you know I think after the first three months of being in the job I'd send a tweet and it was something like wow being a CISO is a lot harder than talking about being a CISO. <laughs> <laughs> what, what kind of what kind of stuff do you get involved in then is it is it hands-on nitty-gritty you know, dealing with uh, incidents and stuff like that, or are you uh, more strategic? How does it work in, at that level? 
Well, I, I love this particular role because it's both. So it's um, it, because of the size that we are, you know, and, and, and very kind of you to say major bank. I mean, we are, you know, uh, uh, we recently left challenger status, you know, so we're well situated. Um, we service a, a lot of customers, you know, we do a, a lot of great business. Um, we're a growing bank. And so there's still very much a need to be able to get hands-on, which I enjoy, you know? So it's been the perfect kind of role for me because I've gotten to do the strategy stuff. I've gotten to do the things to help grow the capability and further embed, you know, what was already an awesome capability. Um, but yeah, it's been exciting to continue to use my brain a bit on the tech side as well. Yeah, very cool. I, yeah, I like nice it. One. Go on, Ash, sorry. So, um, so kind of re kind of going backwards um into when you started um how how did you educate yourself were you a self learner did you attend uh, technical because you said you you know you had some you always wanted to be learn the details of things how did you start in the industry from a from a learning perspective sure sure i um so yeah back in the day i i didn't have any understanding of where to get information and um I mean, when did Google start? They didn't even have Google then, did they? <laughs> I don't remember. I basically found the Sands Institute. I, I was trying to remember how I found the Sands Institute, and I, I couldn't tell you how. Uh, I simply don't remember. But yeah, I found the Sands Institute, and I got myself signed up and um, managed to convince my company at the time to pay for it. How, again, I don't remember. Yeah. Um, but I went to the – my first ever Sands course was in Monterey in, I think it was 2000. And um, I, again, at the time, I somehow oversubscribed myself. And so I was running all over the whole week trying to go to this class and that class and this course. And I ended up with a stack of books that wouldn't fit in my suitcase. And I had like three book bags I was trying to carry back on the airplane back to Texas at the end of it. Um, but yeah, that was for me, again, it was sort of another light bulb moment because it was just, it was like, wow, here's this whole uh, cadre of people and, and, you know, ways of getting information and, and uh, knowledge and, and just because prior to that, my only experience had been one of our first discovered, Oh, I might actually like computers. Um, I tried to find a degree to do. And the only degree at the time, this was like 96, the only degree at the time I could find was MIS, which was management of information systems. Um, and um, yeah, I had not been pleased with that you know it was like I took I took three courses before I was like screw this and I dropped out it was a COBOL class it was a C++ class and it was an accounting class and I was like right I'm out yeah. <laughs> so yeah. I think that's it's interesting isn't it like in in today's kind of landscape I think um you know the 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 level um of security awareness that's taught in academia today is vastly different to, to where it used to be. And I think that's probably, you know, how the landscape, the threat landscape has shifted over the years, I would imagine. But, but you've been on the journey, like you, you've taken SANS courses, but you also got to the level of being a SANS instructor as well. So what did that kind of look like? How did that kind of feel? Oh, I love that. I mean, that was brilliant. And it was something that at the time I, uh, for a long, I mean, I did it for 10 years. So I worked um, across 10 years for those guys. And um, I, probably spent the first five years every single course I taught thinking I'm not worthy of teaching this class you know so it was for me um I just had to push myself to do it why, why and, did you think why did you think that sorry to interrupt you why, why was that then I I think because I 
I think some of it goes back to, again, social mores. So growing up thinking, you know, and just being taught immediately that you're less than. Um, I know that now. I couldn't have put that into words at that time. Um, I think that's part of it. And it was nothing from my parents. That's just, again, culturally how it was at that time. And that is still a culture that's pervasive, you know, for a lot of women around the world. Um, I also think part of it for me was I, <laughs> the only computer class I'd ever taken and the only class I ever made a B in, in school, uh, you know, A, B, C, D, F grades in the States, uh, was a computer class. And so I felt like a complete failure, you know, and so that just haunted me for a long time. And so I just always felt like while I was passionate about it and I loved learning about it, my fear was always that I wasn't actually that good, like imposter syndrome, I think we would mm. call it now, you know, and I was never good enough. And I wasn't the, um, the only Olympic star I can think of is Greg Luganis because I heard his name the other day, but I wasn't the, you know, the gold star, uh, the, the gold um, uh, leader yeah. sort of thing. And uh, yeah, so I think that's where it came from. Um, but fortunately I just persisted, so. <laughs> So did that type of um, attitude to succeed and put and will to succeed help you through college? So I, I read in a previous interview that you'd worked four jobs while at college. And for some people, they'd think, I'm not doing that. You know, maybe one job is too much, but four. And that's really impressive. So, you know, what motivated you to do that? Well, I had to pay for school. <laughs> yeah. And, yeah. Uh, do you know what's funny in terms of motivation? I just, I, I, again, I think I'd grown up with this sort of um, lesson from my parents that you had to have a degree. And, um, you know, interestingly enough, my parents, I came out when I was 19. So I came out as a lesbian and, um, and my parents cut me off whenever that happened. And so I, could have very easily dropped out of school um, and could have just changed a lot of things. And for whatever reason, I didn't. And I, to this day, I don't necessarily have a great understanding of why I didn't. I just wanted to persist. Maybe it's because I didn't know what else to do. And I was already on the path. Maybe if I hadn't been on the path, it would have been more difficult. But I was already on the path at school. And I already had, you know, made friends there and I had links into how to get a job. And I, I mean, I had my first job when I was 12 years old. So getting a job was never a problem for me. Um, and I, I think it was just easier to do that than to, you know, flake out of it and try and figure out what else I should do. <laughs> I mean, you mentioned a, a real key word uh, several times now. I've, even, I've written it down in, in, in persistence. And that seems to be a real common theme here of um you know setting your mindset to something and, and just keep trying learning soak up the atmosphere etc and it's, it's obviously one of the keys to your success um i i guess if we rewind a little bit i mean i, I look at your your job role history on linkedin you know security architecture at pepsico technical services at verizon I love this one. The global head of attack and data, data leakage monitoring. That's an amazing role title at Barclays. Global manager at Socket Blackberry, director of Socket Pearson, uh, VP of intelligence at Digital Shadow. The list goes on. It's unbelievable. Um, so when you were kind of like in your earlier career, did you, did you kind of have an end goal in sight or does your goal, do, do your goals kind of change a little bit as you, as you navigate through your career? 
No, I initially, I mean, I, I always wish I could go back and tell people I had some grand plan, you know, and just <laughs> look like I was really amazingly smart at how I mapped it out. Um, but no, I, I, I made the joke earlier to you guys, and it's true. I was a little bit like a squirrel with, you know, the next shiny nut. It was like, oh, that looks interesting. Let's go do that, you know. And um, again, it was because I was so curious about what I was doing, and I was so excited to grow my opportunities and to expand my, you know, sort of horizons within the InfoSec space. And um, anytime I sort of felt settled or I felt like I'd understood a bit what I was doing and I didn't see the next leg up, you know, coming sort of for me quickly down the pipeline, like in the next six months to a year, um, I, I just go look for a new job, quite frankly, which, you know, kids at home maybe don't follow me on that one. But, um, but uh, yeah, it, it, it for me was just pursuing my passions and, and looking for what I was interested in at that time. So I spent sort of the first 10 years of my career really just loving, like I said, the tech stuff. And um, I was just fascinated by all the technical ins and outs and wanted to learn as much as I could. And yeah, I was really fortunate to land in a lot of different roles where I, I was given a lot of leeway to teach myself a lot of things as well. Yeah, I think I think personally, I think a lot of businesses probably struggle to give people that runway, that pathway, you know, that survives more than a couple of years without you getting bored. Um, so uh, I, I think, you know, that mentality of, of looking elsewhere, you know, it's not a bad thing, is it? Because you, if you if you've got the hunger to learn and develop, then then sometimes that's the best option. And, you know, to see how other businesses do things um, and to go and kind of Put your stamp on those on, on those environments is is quite rewarding i would imagine so so one of the things um i wanted to touch on is um i see from twitter and linkedin posts you're really passionate about empowering um diversity and marginalized communities so do you want to take do you want to take us through weds i'm interested in what weds is all about yeah, sure. Happy to. So um, <clears throat> WEDS um, basically came together um, because I had been chatting with um, uh, the other co-founders of that. And we all came to the conclusion that, sorry, <coughs> at, at the time it was at Digital Shadows. And we all came to the conclusion that across the different um, companies that we were involved in, that we just we felt like there was more that we could do to help bring uh, diversity to the forefront of those companies, even though they were small, you know, they're startups, they're uh, some of them, I think one of them at the time had maybe 13 people, you know, um, uh, at DS at the time, I think we were about 150 people or so whenever, you know, I got involved. And it started off as women empowering diversity in startups. And after the first um, couple of times of, you know, meeting and getting together, we really felt compelled to evolve that to um, uh, we embrace diversity in startups. And the reason for that is we wanted to make sure that we were bringing, um, first of all, you know, all different kinds of people, but, but obviously including men in that as well. Um, the thing that was really important to us that we discovered over those first few sessions is that without men being there and being supportive of what we were doing across, you know, all the diversity initiatives, we were in effect creating exactly what we were trying to, you know, avoid, which was marginalizing people. And um, it was something that uh, generated a lot of really interesting debate amongst us. I mean, we're, we're all still women that are involved as co-founders of it. But yeah, we all ultimately decided we felt really passionately about that. And um, we've taken a break now with COVID just because each of us on the separate companies and I'm obviously no longer in a startup, but the other ladies are. And um, it, 
it just became a bit overwhelming with everything else that was in motion. But it's still sort of ticking over in the background, and we will come back to it as things start to uh, continue to progress. Amazing. And um, one of the things I, I, I'd always say when I, when I visited Digital Shadows um, at the time was it, was it was so diverse, like you had so many different types of people from different cognitive abilities from different walks of life and different ethnic backgrounds. How do you, um, how do you promote that within an organization without positively discriminating as well? Uh, do you have any tips for that for managers? <clears throat> yeah, we get a lot of questions about that. I mean, I've had a lot of questions about that. I'm saying we thinking about Weds again. Um, the best ways that I've seen to do that um, is, um, first of all, you know, talk to your staff, teach your staff around um, uh, things like cognitive bias, um, you know, how to um, work with uh, unconscious bias, sorry, I mean, how to work around unconscious bias that they may have, teach them what that means. Um, then do things like encourage your recruiters to make sure that they're compiling and bringing you short lists so where you use you know recruiters short lists that represent diversity so they might easily a recruiter for example might go out and <clears throat> they might find like that you know five guys ready to go these guys all have great experience brilliant you know okay fantastic I want you to spend a little bit longer please and now find me you know could you find five women could you reach out and find, you know, could you find any people that are perhaps representative of the BAME community? Could you, you know, ensure that you, or, or see if there's any way to find out if there's people that have neurodiversity, you know, um, sort of attached to maybe their profile or anything like that. You know, we'd like to speak to them as well. We also have encouraged companies to put out what we call the welcome map. So to basically attach a statement to job profiles that say, we want to hire everyone or anyone that meets you know the qualifications for this role and then you want to make sure your qualifications don't inadvertently um, discriminate or don't inadvertently put someone off so there's different tools out there for example where you can run the language of your profile through a tool and it will tell you this profile has actually got a lot of more masculine sort of language to it than um, what might be traditionally more sort of feminine language. And what that might mean is that for a woman that reads it, uh, for example, they might think, oh, well, there's no way, you know, I'm not a leader or a, I don't know, an adventurer. I can't even think of masculine words now. <laughs> but it, it really encourages you to highlight and then tweak that. So to make it, you know, again, more open sounding for everyone. Um, the last tip, and I think probably most people are aware of this now, but just in case you're not, is to remove names from CVs. So when you get CVs in and you're putting them in front of your hiring manager, just take the names off. The names do not matter whenever you are mapping a role to a possible candidate. You know, really I need to know. Well, I need to know their name when I talk to them. Before that, you know, I don't care. I mean, you know, no offense to anyone, I don't care what your name is. The other thing, and I tell candidates this a lot of times, take off your hobbies, right? Hobbies, so many times, and I've sat in interviews and I've called people out I've worked with, where they've said, oh, look, so-and-so is a, a sailing person. I love sailing as well. Mate, I don't care, you know? I don't, unless you need them to sail a boat to deliver the next sprint, I don't care. You know, and so the thing that I've seen is that we're doing this sort of big shift in terms of how we use CVs to relate ourselves and to relate our experience. And I think people are still clinging to some of those old traits and, and ways of doing it in the past. So, yeah, yeah. I just uh, that, that's really, really of... powerful and, and, and great advice that we can absolutely share <laughs> with uh, the wider community as well. Do, do you tend to find, I, I guess, I feel like this is a loaded question, but do you tend to find that, um, 
that kind of content on a CV, like your hobbies, what you've got in your GCSEs and stuff is from like the kind of younger community looking to break into a role that don't really have much to say on a CV. So they'll fill it with something. Or is it, do you um, still find it, you know, from more experienced people looking to progress? I, I've seen it across the board. Um, and again, I've, I've, I mean, I've, I've really only been hiring and building teams for the last 10 years. So, but uh, across that period of time, I've definitely seen all kinds. So all age groups, all, you know, both men and women um, and, and from different parts of the world as well. Certainly some parts of the world will have, you know, slightly different take than other parts of the world. But I would say, yeah, the biggest things that, that people could do is to think about other ways to leverage other experiences that they have. So for example, um, I used to work with a chap that um, he wanted to take on and, and tackle a team lead role. And he said, I just don't have the experience. He's like, look, I was at uni. And then, you know, you guys gave me a leg up with this role. He's like, I just can't tell how to show that I've got, you know, what it takes to tackle this. And so I sat down and talked to him and found out he had been the, um, manager for his band in uni and I said great I said let's talk about what did you have to do to manage the band and so we talked about you know coordinating schedules he talked about being able to make sure that people could get to their destination and everyone was coordinated and you know all this kind of stuff and I just told him I said great let's extract those details and talk about that for that period of time and then that's a great way to indicate and show that you've got the right drive that you can be trusted that you've done something that's relatable for that period of time. I don't need to know that you were necessarily, you know, a Boy Scout and you achieved a campfire badge, but even if that's all you have, let's figure out again to a way to relate that experience and show that it is a great indicator for how you might succeed in a very entry level role. And this is where I think sometimes we're failing people, especially people that are looking for entry level roles is we're not helping them to realize you actually have probably got a ton of great experience. You know, I don't want to hire you an entry level analyst and you've already got five years admin experience. Mm -hmm. That's just stupid. You know, mm -hmm. well, I wouldn't do that to you. I want to help you build your career. What's really fascinating, um, having read through your kind of uh, about page uh, quite extensively on your LinkedIn, um, a lot of the stuff that you mentioned is like communication skills, business case preparation, presentation skills, vendor management, relationship building. None of that is InfoSec specific. Right. And that, that's all. Obviously, you've, you've gathered all of those capabilities throughout the course of your career. How, how important do you think that kind of skill set is, you know, the people management side or the, um, the communication skills side to, to actually progressing, you know, throughout the, um, the, the industry without necessarily focusing on technical stuff? Um, I, I mean, I think it's mandatory if you want to, and again, all, obviously all this is my own two cents, but if you want to progress and grow your career, I think it's mandatory that you have those capabilities. Um, and, and then saying that, you know, I've run into people that um, <coughs> they call themselves sort of nine to fivers and, you know, they're happy with where they are. They know that they come and do their thing Monday to Friday and, and then they go home and there, I mean, I worked with a guy, this is a few jobs ago. I worked with a guy that had done the same role for about 10 years. And I talked to him at one point and I was like, Hey, look, mate, you know, what, what can we do about growing your career? There's this opportunity, that opportunity. And he told me point blank. He was like, Becky, this is what I want to do. He's like, I'm happy here. I'm good at what I do. And he was, he was great at what he did. And he said, um, he said, you know, I just, this is, this is what I want to do for work. He was like, but, but work isn't the end all be all for me. 
And I think we have to be cognizant, you know, that it takes both types. So for someone like that, did he need presentation skills? Nope. <laughs> you know, did he need management skills? Nope. I needed him to be able to talk in a professional way and work across other teams. And he was very adept at doing that. So, yeah, I think you just have to take into consideration, you know, what is it that you want to um, do, I guess, to grow your career or keep your career where it is. I think you've got, that's a really, really interesting insight. Um, and I think um, knowing that you've been quite heavily involved in, in mentoring programs as well throughout um, your, your career, what, what do you think you've, you've learned the most then from mentoring other people? What have you taken back from it? You've obviously given people a lot of insights throughout the course of your progression. Um, what, what do you think you've taken from it the most? Um, I think anytime I've ever talked to, or, or to your point, tried to help other people and, and, you know, have people come to me and ask for advice or for mentoring assistance and things like that. I've always walked away with a sense of, um, number one, I love to help other people. Um, you know, and I've always walked away with almost a sense of sort of selfishness, like, you know, yeah, I feel like I was, it was able to try and do what I wanted to do there. So a bit, a bit selfish on that one. Um, um, I, the second thing I think I sort of take away from that is try to, I kept trying to figure out how to word it. I always want to try and stay authentic. Um, I've talked to so many different people and I've had, um, some really lovely things said to me as a result, you know, because people are always, I think, fairly effusive whenever they feel like you've given up your time and, and they may look up to you for whatever reason. And, and I just I've always walked away from anything like that thinking, you know, I don't want to get a big head. I don't want to think I'm better than I am. I want to continue to try to help people and continue to try to be myself while doing so. Um, so which again, maybe sounds a bit headed, big headed that I would even think that. No, but, no, not that's, at all. <laughs> but yeah, that's, that's the, again, the, the most sort of insightful thing I can think of sharing that, I, that I've walked away from some of those engagements with, because I certainly met a lot of people who I really look up to. And some of them, you know, to be quite frank, have, have been a bit up their own, you know, what's it. And um, <laughs> I just never, you know, never wanted to be one of those people. I wanted to always be approachable so that I could hopefully try to have meaningful and shared experiences with others. How do you, um, how do you, um, what kind of tips would you give someone to approach someone like yourself? You know, you, you are, you, you're part of that um, superstar CISO group, I would say. Uh, no, it, it's true. I mean, you, you're, vo you, you're vocal on Twitter, you're vocal on LinkedIn, you have content, you have interviews, you're very much out there. So you're, you're part of that league of, uh, you know, of, of CISOs that I would say, you know, I, I look up to and other people probably do, but you know, how does someone how does a normal person in quotations approach someone like yourself and what kind of tips would you give someone uh, uh, again ju just reach out i mean literally just you know and the only difficulty that i'll say i run into now is because i've over the past couple of years in particular i've made such an effort to try and give back because i finally got to a point in my career where i felt like yeah, Becky, you can open your mouth and try and give back now. You actually have accumulated enough experience and it's okay to try and help other people. Um, the only difficulty I run into now is I um, sometimes get a bit overwhelmed with it. And um, it, it's funny because a, a long time ago, you know, if someone didn't answer an email I sent them or didn't answer a message I sent them, I was like, oh, well, screw you. You know, you're a horrible person. How dare you not answer me? And now I'm like, oh my God, I get it. They were just really, really busy. You know? <laughs> 
and uh, I, I feel really badly now about <laughs> sorry people in the past I may have thought that about um, so yeah I think that's the only difficulty and I would just tell anyone that has reached out to someone no just know that that's probably what it is you know there I would respond to each and every single message I get if I could um, 99% of the time it's just absolutely not possible so I have to mm -hmm. pick and choose but I would definitely say reach out and where you especially, you know, have those questions or have those immediate needs for help, just throw that right into the message, right into whether it's LinkedIn, people contact me over Twitter, you know, different people reach me through other folks that we might know in common. And if I can help, I will help. The easiest way, I think, again, to, to ask for help is to just put it up there exactly what you need, because if it takes a lot of back and forth, you know, that's just going to make it more difficult to, to get help. Mm. I love it. Yeah, really good, really good insights. I guess from, um, I got a couple more questions um, before we kind of uh, draw it to a close, I guess. This is really fascinating. I could go on for so long if I'm honest with you, um, especially given the breadth of uh, the roles that you've, you've, you've worked through uh, throughout the, the last kind of 20 years or so. Um, you've had some really technical roles. You've worked in the vendor land, you've worked in the education space with SANS, et cetera. You're now into kind of CISO space, obviously. What, what do you think, what would you put down as the most exciting thing that you've ever worked on? Was it like a, a cyber attack you dealt with back in 98 on a Windows NT box or was it, or was it something else? Oh gosh, that, that was the original exciting event. Um, <laughs> Um, uh, do you know what? I, I've, I've, I think I always joke about this. I think I've probably forgotten more than, um, you know, I'll never, ever even know. Um, I, gosh, off the top of my head, one of the things that always sticks with me wasn't necessarily anything exciting from like an attacker perspective or anything, but I am in, inadvertently, I worked for Singular and, uh, they were at the time, they, eventually got bought by AT&T, I think it was, their tel big telco company in the States. And um, I inadvertently brought down their whole national um, data center um, by basically putting an, an IPS uh, incorrectly on the network. I love <laughs> so it. That was, <laughs> that was, uh, that was, I almost got fired over that. That was frightening. Um, so that was, <laughs> that one will probably stick with me until I die. It's always the mistakes that stick with you, right? My first ever real security job, um, I started messing with their firewall and I was brand new to Unix and Linux as well. And actually a complete moron. And I started changing a bunch of things on the Linux box, um, whatever flavor it was, I don't remember. And uh, basically just bricked it. It's so <laughs> <laughs> Still happens to today, don't worry. Yeah. yeah, I had to reach out to the vendor and ask for their help at that point in time. They're like, yeah, what have you done to this? So I was like, oh, it's always the mistakes that stick out. Um, I'll share one incident with you. I'll never forget again, a long time ago, but when the, I loved you virus hit, um, another joke I've told repeatedly. Um, but when the, I love you virus hit again, I was in a smaller company and it brought down the email servers. And so <laughs> myself and the two other guys I worked with at the time, were just running up and down the hallways. Nobody loves you. Nobody <laughs> loves you. <laughs> Don't click on it. <laughs> I love it. Oh, yeah. That's amazing. So that, it's like that, a scene out of um, Mr. Robot. Yeah, that's, that, <laughs> that is amazing, actually. Um, uh, I, I don't know. I don't think we, I don't know if we covered it or not, but what, um, what, what gets you motivated 
in, throughout the day, you know, to do your job as a CISO? Is it your passion to know more um, or is it just, you know, just you, just you, just you as a person? <laughs> I, I think it's uh, probably just pure nosiness. I just, uh, if I see a little log fire off or if I see a little question come across, you know, I'll see a little, I don't know, this or that. I just want to know, you know, um, does it, is that happening where it's supposed to be happening? I think it's why in my heart, I'll always be an operations person. Mm. Um, I love ops. I love the fast pace of ops. I love, you know, the, the fact that you have to pull together so many just completely obscure random pieces of knowledge and experience across such a breadth of, of security to, I think, be any good at ops. And I'm not saying that I am any good at ops, but I love it. And um, I think that's what drives me. You know, I, I can actually find that if I, I, too long of a period of time goes where I don't have some sort of technical stimulation. Um, I get quite bored. Um, so yeah, mm. it, it, it for me is always that that drive of finding something. I mean, is that the type? Oh, go on, sorry. No, 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 go on, go on, go on. No, I was just going to say. So is that the is that the thing? So there is, you know, someone someone sat there now looking at the Aldermore careers page, thinking, do you know what I want to work for this? I want to work for Becky. Is that the type of thing that you're looking for in in a in a in a person in a perspective uh, colleague? Their drive or certificates or how many university degrees they've got no no definitely not not certificates not university degrees um <clears throat> i would definitely say um yeah their drive i mean i think enthusiasm is so important for this job i think that if you don't have the enthusiasm you know to do it then you especially from the lens of needing to find something and needing to get questions answered i think you'll just quickly get burnt out on your own um, and I wouldn't want to put someone into the kinds of roles, you know, where we, we need to have enthusiasm to be successful. And I think outside of that, um, I always try to look for people actually that have and are much better at me, you know, than in, in other areas. Um, <clears throat> well, in, in all areas. I mean, like I said, I'm not a guru at any of it. But in particular, you know, I, I love people that are really detail oriented. You know, I'd love to hire people that um, are really focused and, and driven on maybe a particular subject or a particular area of expertise, or even that have been across, you know, lots of different areas and are looking to maybe grow specifically within a certain area of cybersecurity. I would just say, yeah, it, it's that passion for learning and that ability to map that back to, hey, I think this could help, you know, with the role that you're talking about and what you guys have going on. Um, outside of that, there's, there's literally nothing else. Everything can be learned. If you have a desire to learn enthusiasm and you enjoy, you know, this, this thing we call InfoSec, it can all be learned. So, yeah. All right. Last, last question then on that, on that topic, how would you describe InfoSec then as an industry? If you could sum it up in a two or three words to someone who's looking to break into the industry, how would you describe it? Um, InfoSec. I, I'm not good at these. <laughs> um, I would say expansive, um, ever-changing uh, opportunity. Yeah, that's yeah, really good. Yeah. yeah, yeah, nice. And I, well, listen, it's been super. Um, it's been so insightful um, listening to to you speak. Hear about your mindset, your persistent nature, uh, and and where it all kind of started um back with uh with windows nt um I, I really love it so thank you for sharing your insights becky um and i'm excited for everyone else to hear this as well 
Yeah. No, thanks for having me. It's been good to see you both. Been too long. And uh, yeah, thanks for having me on. Take off your hobbies, right? Hobbies so many times. And I've sat in interviews and I've called people out. I've worked with They've said, Oh, look, so-and-so is a, a sailing person. I love sailing as well. Mate, I don't care. You know, I don't, unless you need them to sail a boat to deliver the next sprint, I don't care. You know, I think after the first three months of being in the job, I'd send a tweet and it was something like, wow, being a CISO is a lot harder than talking about it. 